Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Are you tired of the fight? Fed up with the struggle? Ready to throw in the towel? Don't do it. You haven't come this far to only come this far. This story, this interview, this podcast may be exactly what you need to take the next right step forward. We recognize there are multiple pathways to recovery, and we just hope we can show you one and that you can try it, you can adapt, and you'll find your way to recovery. But before we get into the interview, I want to I want to share something pretty exciting with you from this side of the microphone. We want you to email us a question or a comment about any one of our episodes or even an idea for an upcoming show, and you'll be automatically entered in a drawing for a free copy of our soon-to-be-released book, Recovery Conversations with Randy Davis. Volume 1 should be available mid-July. I'm thinking that when I get away from the studio today, I could get home. We could have our dummy copy. We'll make some changes. We'll have it in print now by the middle of July. We're excited about that. Ten of our listeners will be winners. So send your email to podcast at ablbh.org. Include your name and town of residence so we can give you a shout-out. We look forward to hearing from you. We welcome any questions, any comments, and maybe maybe today's episode will be the one that creates those thoughts in your mind that you want to share. Our guest today, he comes to us from Baltimore, Maryland, or maybe I should say we go to him because we're doing this remote. His name, Timothy Logan. Welcome, Timothy. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate for you guys having a platform to allow me to share my story and to reach one more person. Well, we appreciate your willingness to become a part of this, and we're excited to hear what you've got to say. I know in the bio that you sent us, you say you're a former U.S. Marine. How long did you serve in the Marines? Um, I served two and a half years out of four years. Uh, I uh, unfortunately ended up breaking my ankle three times. And on the third time, the uh, Navy doctor said they wanted to do surgery on me. And um, to be honest, I, I really didn't want to have surgery at that time. I heard a whole bunch of horror stories back in the 90s about how they came out worse than they went in. So I opted not to have surgery. And because of that, I was um, unable to uh, stay on active duty. So what I ended up doing was getting honorable discharge from the Marine Corps and coming home at the age of uh, 20, almost 21 years old. I get that. I get that. Where were you stationed and what was your role at that time as a Marine? I was stationed at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. And my um, my MOS is uh, 0311 Infantry. So I joined the Marine Corps. I wanted to be infantry. My, my father, my brother, both of my grandfathers were all in the Army, and I decided I wanted to 
take a different route. I, you know, I, I always went above and beyond what I was supposed to do in, in sports and stuff. So I, I told myself, you know, if I'm going to join the military, I want to be the best of the best. And the Marine Corps is the best of the best. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I trained a lot. Um, after I got done boot camp, went to my MOS training, and then I got stationed at Camp Lejeune where I actually became a fire team leader, and I trained other Marines coming through the School of Infantry. Okay. Well, thank you for your service. I am a former military man myself, having served in the Army, and I just left yesterday from Fayetteville, North Carolina, where, of course, Fort Bragg is. Well, it's no longer Fort Bragg. It's now called Fort Liberty. And, oh, okay. Uh, so I've, I've got a close affiliation and affinity with those who have served. My dad served in World War II, my brother in Vietnam. I was stationed in Frankfurt, Germany, and had a pretty good. I also That's s- nice. Yeah, yeah. I also see that you have a background as an MMA fighter. Tell the folks a little about that. Yeah, so uh, growing up, um, I, I did uh, multiple, multiple sports. And um, <laughs> I didn't get into mixed martial arts until I was 32 years old. That's not a young um, man for that sport. No, I, I, through trials and tribulations of my life, I had uh, unfortunately not been able to hold a job after getting out of the Marine Corps. I went through 46 jobs from the age of 21 until the age of about 38. But at the age of 32, I had lost another job. And I was really lost as far as self-esteem, self-worth, self-value. What, uh, you know, what was my purpose? Um, and I, I really wanted to get back into sports or competitive type of sports. Cause I found that when I did sports, the training, the acclimates, the, the, you know, just putting in the hard work really gave me a high self-esteem. So I told my wife, I said, hey, I think I want to get back into sports. And she's like, well, what sports? You're 32. And I'm like, I, I want to do mixed martial arts. And she's like, are you serious? And I said, yes. I said, I have a background in boxing, taekwondo. Um, you know, I was always familiar with combat sports. And bless her heart, she told me, she said, I'll tell you what, um, I'll give you a year. If you, if you can't get any fights, if you're not making any money, after this year, you're going to have to give it up and, and get back and get a real job. I have, We had two daughters at the time. She said, but I'm going to give you a year, so make it count. Well, with, I went to training, um, went to camps, and within six months, I picked up some sponsors, and I had my first fight. And that one year ended up being a three-year-long career in mixed martial arts where I fought up and down the East Coast. Um, Pennsylvania, Maryland, D.C., Virginia, uh, and I was making some pretty good money. I was fighting on TV. I was fighting in front of, you know, three, 4,000 people, I think was my biggest crowd. I fought for a belt at one point, and it was really, really making my self-esteem go up. It was making me feel valuable, making me feel like I had some type of work in my life. I was getting in shape, so that, that really was a big self-esteem thing for me. But at the age of 35, in my last fight, I unfortunately ended up tearing my rotator cuff in three places and having to get major surgery. And at that point, my wife said, you know what, You're, you, you had a good run. Three years was a little bit longer than we thought. 
said, you're going to have to give it up. And I had to have major surgery, which put me out for nine months and excessive physical therapy. And unfortunately, those that surgery and the physical therapy put me on a four and a half year long uh, addiction to Oxycontin's prescribed to me from my doctor. Okay, okay. You've told us about some of those. I guess I'm going to label those physical confrontational battles. All right. <laughs> now, Absolutely. I. You've also had another battle of about 27 years old with a bipolar disorder, with alcohol and drug addiction, multiple suicide attempts, as you told me earlier. Tell us that story. Kind of go back to the beginning and run us through that, if you will. I'll interrupt you with a question here or there. But, folks, I want to remind you, you're listening to Faith in Your Recovery, and this is Timothy Lodgen. So go ahead, Tim. So when I got out of the Marine Corps, um, the first month home was really kind of good, actually. I, I, you know, I was, it was a decompression period for me. I didn't have to get up at 3.30 in the morning. I didn't have to wear a certain uniform. I didn't have to have my hair cut. I didn't have to run five miles a day. So I was kind of like, ah, you know, I, I, I don't have to get up at a certain time. The second month came, and, and I started to feel myself get into a, a depression. I'm back home at my mom's house. You know, I'm 21. I don't have a car. I don't have a job. I don't have a, a title. I'm not a Marine anymore. What am I? My only other job experience up to that point was working at a grocery store all through high school. So what am I going to do now? The third month came and I fell into a severe depression. I wasn't leaving my room. I wasn't showering. I wasn't shaving. I was drinking every day. Um, and since I was out of the military, I started smoking pot and taking some pain pills from my friends. And I found myself one day sitting in my bedroom, um, I had the idea to go into my father's armoire and grab his gun. And I sat it on my lap and, and I'm crying and I'm looking at the gun. And thank God at that time, I had the right mind to call my girlfriend. And I said, hey, I'm sitting here staring at a gun. I don't know what I'm doing, but I need help. Fortunately enough, she was at my house within five minutes. She took the gun from me. Later that evening, when my mother came home, I sat her down. I said, Mom, something's wrong. I'm not feeling myself. I think I need to go see a doctor. I didn't tell her I just had my stepfather's gun in my lap because at that time she would have had me committed into a hospital, and, and I wasn't ready for that. But I did tell her I needed to speak to somebody because I just wasn't feeling myself. Understood. Yeah, we get into the doctors that next week. And the doctors sit me down, they do a bunch of tests on me, and they diagnose me with bipolar 1 manic depressive disorder. So this is in 1990, almost 1996. Their first solution was to put me on medicines to equal out my imbalance of my chemicals in my brain. And what I tell people is, if the doctors are putting you on any type of medicines, whether it's psychological, whether it's for heaven forbid, cancer or kidneys or liver or heart, whatever the medication that the doctor is putting you on, please be honest with your doctors. I was never honest with my doctors. I didn't tell them I was drinking alcohol every day. I didn't tell them I was smoking pot. I didn't tell them that I was taking pain pills whenever I could get them from my friends. 
So the medicines that they were putting me on, when I went back for the 30, 60, or 90-day checkup, whenever the doctor had me come back, and they would evaluate me and ask me, how are you feeling? I would simply tell them, it's not working. I feel worse than it was before I came in here. And their solution, because I wasn't telling them the truth. Higher dosage. Yeah, high, that's, that's up to milligrams. And then I would go back again after 30, 60, 90 days. Okay, well, maybe those medicines aren't working for you. We're going to try to put you on these medicines. That up and down, up on medicines, off medicines, uh, uh, higher milligrams, try this cocktail, try that cocktail, went on from the age of 21 until the age of 44 when I got into rehab and finally got soaked because I was never honest with my doctors. Heaven forbid I would have been honest and said I have an alcohol and drug addiction problem, but I didn't want to admit that at that point. For me, it was the medicine. It's just not working. And then when it didn't work, after being on 20 or 30 different types of medicines, cocktails, you know, high dosages, low dosages, I would simply say, well, there must be something wrong with me because They've had me on almost all the medicines that they could possibly do, and it's still not working. Did so you, am I just did insane? Kim, you know? did you at that point recognize your reliance upon the drugs and alcohol? Uh, do you to, think you recognize that? To, to be honest, I didn't want to admit to myself that I was born with a chemical imbalance. Okay. I, I always had a stigma against that. I, I would always say, why do I have to take a medicine to feel like somebody else? Why do I have to take something to make me feel you know, normal in society when so many other people just wake up and they don't have to deal with what I deal with? Or why was I born like this? And what gonna, did I do to deserve this? Yeah, and I'm going to guess that the marine time had some influence on all of that. You were taught there wasn't anything you couldn't handle. You were, quote, unquote, a man's man, and here you are dependent on something which had to play with your head in different ways. Am I accurate? A hundred percent. You know, we, we were taught to be 10 foot tall and bulletproof and, um, you know, suck it up, buttercup. You're absolutely correct. We're men. Men don't cry. Men don't have feelings. You know, you just you just trudge through the trenches and get it done. And that's exactly how I was raised, too. My father was a police officer for 37 years. He was in the Army for eight years. You know, my grandfather was a drill instructor. You know, we just... That it, was in your blood as much yeah. as the, uh, <laughs> the disease of addiction. That was in your blood. Absolutely. You know, and, and the funny thing, you know, my mother and father weren't addicts. Um, my father occasionally drank at a Christmas party or a birthday party, I, you know, and my mother growing up, she was a professional bodybuilder. She ate healthy. She didn't drink alcohol. Uh, she didn't ever do drugs. I don't think she said she's never done drugs her entire life. So I wasn't around that either. But the, the military, you know, I just felt as if when I graduated high school, that's what the men in my family did. We joined the military. That was the um, next step, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, just keep keep the lineage going of military men in my family. 
And you were at a place physically to where you didn't recognize it yet, but that wasn't going to play out the same way for you as it did for them. That due to your your propensity for the, you know, addiction, the drugs, and then to get those pills and everything, this had to be a difficult time for your head, that suicide attempt you talked about. There had to be times your head was just spinning, didn't know what to do or which way to turn. Yes? I've, I've been lost for 27 years, and that is the best term that I can put it. Um, I didn't know what I was meant to be in this life. I didn't know why I was here. It wasn't until when I tore my rotator cuff um, at the age of 35 and, and I had that surgery and got put on the Oxycontin that within the years of me using the Oxycontin, and, and you know, because I'm an addict, I, and I didn't take one pill every four hours. I took three or four every four hours. I would run out of my prescription before the doctor would fill it up. So I'd have to go into the streets and get, you know, the prescription to hold me over to the yep. doctors. Yep. It, it wasn't until the point where I was in my room one day and I got literally scared. I told myself, I'm taking, you know, eight to 12, 20 milligram Oxycontin. I'm drinking 12, 12 beers a day, sometimes 18. And I'm smoking, a, you know, a, an eighth to a quarter of weed every single day even though that's what I'm used to taking and that's what I told myself, that's what made me feel normal. I'm taking so much of this that my body one night might just give out while I'm sleeping because that's taking all those medicines and taking that alcohol slows down your heart rate. It slows down everything. And one night my body just say, you know, I'm done tonight and I might not wake up. And due to the drugs and the alcohol, and not being on the medicine at that time, because for me, I would rather just self-medicate. So I wasn't on my bipolar medicine. I'm taking, you know, eight to 12 Oxycontin, 20 milligrams a day and drinking 12 to 18 beers. I told myself, I don't want to die in my sleep. I would rather just do it right now. And, and I reach over on my arm more and I grab my bottle of Oxycontin and I dump it out into my hand. And I count 18 of them. And I take all 18 Oxycontins and I go out into the living room and I drink a 12 pack of beer within 45 minutes. I then come back into my bedroom and I lay down on the bed and I remember saying, please, God, don't let me wake up. I don't want to live this way. I don't know how to stop. I just want the pain to go away. And I pass out. I wake up the next evening about eight o'clock at night. So I must've been passed out for about 18 hours. And the first thought in my head was, oh my God, I didn't die. My second thought was to immediately get up and go into the bathroom and grab the refill that I had on the countertop in the bathroom, open it up. And I dumped the entire prescription down the toilet. I remember looking into the mirror and telling myself, this is going to get really bad, but no matter how bad it gets, we are never taking pain medicine again. And for the next 10 days of my life, I was the sickest. I think I have ever been in my entire life coming off of opioid addiction. 
um, the throwing up, the nausea, the insomnia, anxiety, panic attacks, chills, fever, um, every everything that you can imagine coming off a four and a half year long opioid prescription addiction. And at the end of these 10 days, I decided to, to leave my house because I've been in the house sick as a dog. And I get in my truck and I go and there's this beautiful reservoir down here in Maryland where people go biking and, and they walk their dogs and take picnics and go fishing. It's a really beautiful reservoir. And I get in my truck and I'm driving through the reservoir and I'm crying. And I, I remember hitting on the steering wheel and hitting the roof of my truck and I'm yelling up in the sky and I'm saying, why am I suffering so bad? If there's something else out there and God, if you really exist and you love me as much as you're supposed to love me, then why am I suffering? What did I do to deserve all of this pain? And to be quite honest, at that time in my life, I didn't believe in a higher power. I didn't believe in a God because to me, if something loves me and created me, then why am I suffering so bad? That was my thought process at the moment. We hear you. And I'm, yeah, and I'm driving through the park and I get to this tree where in 1996, my best friend, unfortunately, lost control of his vehicle, hit the tree, and he ultimately died at the age of 18 due to the car accident. And at this tree, his parents set this little vigil up. And you can go to the tree and put a flower in the vase that they had nailed to the tree. And and you can go and write, there's a book that they have there that's wrapped in plastic, and it's still there today, that you can simply just go up and write write a message to my friend Bill. And I get out of the tree, and I'm crying, and I go up to the tree. And I say, Bill, if there's something else out there besides me, can you please give me a sign? Because I don't believe that there's anything else out there. Because if, I, if there was, I wouldn't be suffering so bad. I'm lost. I don't know why I survived that suicide attempt. I need to know that there's something else out there and that there's something watching over me and protecting me. Please just give me a sign. And I get in my truck and I go to leave the park. And as I'm leaving the park, I'm crying and like my nose is running. So I pull over to the side of the road. But for some reason, I don't pull over on the right side of the road as I'm driving out. I pull over on the left-hand side, you know, facing the oncoming traffic. And I'm wiping my eyes and I'm blowing my nose and, and I'm still crying. And about 10 minutes goes by. And this vehicle pulls up in front of me and we're windshield to windshield because I'm on the opposite side of the road. Exactly. But the gentleman gets, gets out of his vehicle and he opens the back door and he's got his dog. And I see he's about to walk across the street to where the water is and go walk his dog by the water. And I'm walking, I'm watching the gentleman get out and I'm looking at him and I'm like, man, it, that guy really looks familiar to me. I can't really place it. And then all of a sudden it dawns on me. It was my best friend who had passed away in 1996. This was his father. Wow. This, this date is March 16th, 2017, 21 years later. I haven't seen this man since the day of my friend's funeral in 1996. I get out of the vehicle and I say, Mr. Bill, is that you? And he turns around and he looks at me 
And he says, Timmy, what's wrong? And I fall to the curb and I start crying. I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. I survived a suicide attempt. I don't know why I'm here. And he walks over to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, Timmy, I am not supposed to be here today. My bags are packed in my truck. I was supposed to leave at 6 a.m. this morning to drive to South Carolina, Myrtle Beach for a family reunion trip. But my wife came to me in a dream last night and she told me not to leave, to come to this park at 10 a.m. this morning and walk the dog. You've got me in spirit chills. He said, "I, I believe I was sent here to see you. And I looked up at him and I said, Mr. Bill, I just stopped at Billy's tree and asked him for a sign that I wasn't alone, that there was something else out there. And he looks at me and he says, Timmy, you don't have to worry. They're out there. They're watching over us. They're protecting us. Everything is going to be okay. And as I leave the park, I have about 10 minutes to where I'm I'm like jubilated. I'm like, okay, there's something else out there. Everything's going to be okay. I'm going to be protected. And and this is the, the cunning and baffling and manipulative thought process of an addict. As soon as that thought comes into my head, my addiction, my disease of addiction steps in and says, you're absolutely right. They're watching over you. You're being protected. So you don't have to stop living the way that you're living because nothing's going to happen to you. So for the next four years of my life, from 2017 to 2021, so the day I went into rehab, I drank the most alcohol I have ever drank in my entire life thinking that nothing was going to happen to me. I was being protected. I was being looked out over. The, the alcoholism got to the point where the beer wasn't enough. Um, I switched to, to whiskey. And it's funny, you know, the, the, the addictive personality, it has a way to switching your thoughts. And, you know, it told me, don't buy a big bottle of whiskey. Because if you drink that whole bottle of whiskey, and it's gone at the end of the day, you surely are an alcoholic because then you would have the proof that you drank that entire bottle. So, so just buy the little miniatures. You know, you can throw them out the window while you're driving. You can hide them from your wife, your kids. You can take them to work with you and nobody will know you have them in your pocket. You can stick them in your socks. You can put them in the medicine cabinet. You hide them all over the house. Nobody will ever know exactly how much alcohol you're drinking. That's what my 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 disease told me to do. That's cunning so, when you think about it. Uh, it, it absolutely it, is, especially in the moment of your your highest vulnerability, so to speak. And uh, here's ways to make it happen. Go ahead, thanks. Yeah, and and uh, it got to the point where I, I would stop at six thirty in the morning. And I would, I would pick up a sleeve of Fireball whiskey. And a sleeve is 10, 10, 10 bottles all still wrapped together in plastic. And I would pick up the 10. I would drink all 10 of them by my lunchtime, which was 1231 o'clock. Um, and then I would leave the job site and go to the nearest liquor store and grab another 10. I would drink all 10 of those by the time I got off of work, which is usually 330 or 4. On the way home... I would stop and get another 10 of the Fireball whiskey. And I would drink those last 10 
from the time I got off work until about eight thirty, nine o'clock until I passed out. The last year, year and a half of my drinking, I was drinking 25 to 30 fireball miniatures every single day. And I, I had, for some reason, I wanted to know how much alcohol was in one of those miniatures. One miniature is two and a half shots of alcohol. So two and a half times 30 is anywhere up from 60 to 80 shots of fireball whiskey that I was drinking every single day for a year and a half. I don't know how you function through that. Um, you know, I, I, or without I, was, it. I, I was a functioning alcoholic until I wasn't. And that's the best way I can put it. I've heard I told that my, description. I, I told myself I was functioning, but little beknownst to me was my job performance was going down. I was calling out of work a lot. I was fighting with my wife a lot. My kids were scared of me. Um, I've lost a lot of friends. I, I, I get a brand new truck and it's not even two months old. I still have temporary tags on it. And as I'm leaving the liquor store, I hit something in my brand new truck. I come home and I tell my wife, I'm not dealing with this tonight. I just want to go to bed. And I pass out. And I wake up the next morning like a good blackout drunk does. And I say, hey, good morning, everybody. I'm going to go to the store and get milk and bread. What else do we need for breakfast? And she just looks at me and says, how are you going to do that? And I said, oh, my brand new truck in the driveway. She says, Tim, go out and look at your truck in the driveway. And I go outside and I get around to the passenger side of my vehicle. And the side mirror is completely ripped off the side. And my front passenger tire is hanging off the rim and the rims pushed up underneath my bumper. And I'm just sitting there looking at my vehicle. And my wife pops her head out and she looks at me and she says, do you remember what you hit last night? And I said, no, I don't remember anything. And she says, Tim, you could have killed yourself. You could have killed somebody else. I don't know what's going on with you, but I don't want you around the girls anymore. You're going to have to pack your bags and go leave and figure out what's going on, but you can't stay here anymore. How old were your daughters at that time? Um, I have three daughters. My oldest daughter was 24. She, uh, sorry, 23. She had moved out about six months prior. I have a daughter who is, she was 13 at the time and a daughter who was nine. Okay. So, so those two were still in the house when my oldest had moved out, um, at that time. Got you. And, um, I call, call AAA. They come over, they put the spare tire on for me. I pack my bags and I call my friend. I said, hey, buddy, um, can I come over for a, a couple of days? You know, let the wife cool down a little bit. You know, she'll forget all this stuff. She'll let me back in in a couple of days. Just, you know, I just, I just got to get out and give her some space. So he says, sure, no problem. I go over to his house and we talk for a little bit and I tell him what's going on. And he says, well, you know what, buddy? You know, it, it's Friday night. You just got kicked out of your house. We might as well go to the bar and have a few drinks. And, you know, I said, you know what? That's exactly what we should do. I, now I have a justifiable reason to go to the bar. You know, my wife kicked me out. I wrecked my truck yesterday. Let's go drinking. So we go to the bar. I get completely drunk. And less than 24 hours after wrecking my vehicle, as I'm leaving the bar, I ran somebody at the red light. And uh, I get out. 
and I look at the gentleman. I said, are you okay? He says, yeah, I'm fine. He had one of those tow hitches on the back of his truck. So his truck actually had no scratches on it. But now the front of my bumper and my grill are all smashed in from the tow hitch. And I said, well, you're okay. Your truck's okay. I'm out of here, buddy. And I slapped him on his back. I jumped in my truck and I took off because I knew the cops come. I'm going to jail. My truck's getting impounded and I wasn't trying to have it. So I, I left. I get to my friend's house and I tell him, I, I, I can't stay here. I just want to be alone. I'm going to grab my stuff and leave. So I grab my bag. I stop back at the liquor store. I grab two more sleeves of Fireball. And I go and I park my vehicle at one of those parking rides where people can park their vehicle for the day and right. grab a train and go to work. So I go into these parking ride and, and I turn off my phone. I didn't want to hear from nobody. I didn't want nobody calling me, nobody knowing where I was. And I sit in my truck for two days. No contact with anybody. I was sleeping in the back seat, drinking and passing out and throwing up and drinking and passing out and throwing up. That's what I did for 48 hours. No food, just alcohol and passing out and throwing up. And at the end of the two days, March 5th, 2021, at 7 after 10 in the morning, I turned my phone on. Two minutes later, the phone rings after having it off for two days. And I look down, and I don't really recognize the number. It says Westchester, Pennsylvania. So for some reason, I pick it up. And it's my childhood friend, Brandon Novak. And if you don't know who Brandon is, he's one of the members of the Jackass crew that did all the movies on MTV. Oh, I remember uh, that. I couldn't have told you any of the names except John, yeah, whatever he, his he, last name was. Yeah, so Brandon was the guy in the crew that had the worst drug addiction. Um, all, he was on heroin and alcohol and all kind of stuff. But at this point, when he had called me, he is now four years sober. So he calls me and he says, Lodgin, what the F are you doing? And I say, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm drunk, and I'm tired. And he says, good. That's what you need. I just got off the phone with your wife and your mom. I have a plane ticket ready for you tonight at 8.30 p.m. I got you into Banyan Treatment Centers down West Palm Beach, Florida. I want you to get on that plane and go get your life back. And I'm kind of on the other line, just agreeing with them. Okay, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it. But to be honest, I just wanted to hang up the phone. I didn't want to hear that I had to go to rehab. So I hang up the phone. My wife calls me five minutes later, worried. Where have you been? People have been looking for you. They've been trying to get in touch with you. Are you okay? I'm like, yes. She says, I just talked to Brandon. Can you please come home, pack your bags, take a shower, take a little nap and try to get something to eat. Cause I had about four, maybe five hours before I had to be to the airport. So I go home, I pack my bags, I take a shower. I couldn't eat and I couldn't take a nap. My mind's racing. I'm having a panic attack. I'm having an anxiety attack because, oh my God, my life has gotten so out of control that I have now had to go to rehab. He never told me how long am I going for? Is it a 30-day program, a 90-day program, a six-month program? 
oh my God, I cannot believe my life had become so unimaginable that I have to go to a rehab center in Florida. And I'm sitting in my bedroom and I'm, and I'm telling myself I can't go. You know, what about my truck payment? What about my job? What about my girls? What about this? What about coming up with every excuse in the book of why I can't go to rehab of course. to change my life. And I'm sitting on the bed and I'm like, I can't do it. I, I can't go. And I truly believe at this moment that my addiction, my mental illness, and or the devil knew that it had one last shot to grab a hold of me. Let me just interrupt long enough to say you mentioned three different options. I believe it was all three. Um, I, just I my believe two so cents. too. No, I honestly, you know, I, and I say all three because I don't know who's listening and what they believe in, but I sure. truly believe addiction and mental illness all comes from the devil. So, but I, I, I'll categorize all three of those because I believe all three of them are not from God. They are not from a higher we power. We respect that totally. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on my bed and I'm, I can't, I can't do it. I can't go. I, I, oh my God, I can't believe this. And my mental illness and my addiction step in and they say, you're right. You can't go, but grab my hand, come with me and we will end the pain. And my addiction grabs my hand and walks me into the basement of my home. And it tells me to throw a rope around my neck. And it tells me to stand up on the bucket and step off and take away the pain. And I listen to the voice of addiction and mental illness. And I go into the basement of my home and I throw a rope around my neck where my children and my wife live. And I stand up on a bucket and it just simply says, step off. We will take the pain from you. And as I'm about to step off, my wife realizes I'm not in the bedroom. And she comes frantically looking for me. She finds me in the basement of our home in the corner in the dark with a rope around my neck, hysterically crying. And she says, what are you doing? I said, I can't go. I can't do it. I just want the pain to go away. And I don't know how. And she looks at me and she says, Tim, do you know what this would do to your little girls? Please, please get off of that bucket. Get down and get on that plane. Get on that plane and everything is going to be okay. So I, I take the rope from around my neck. I fall to the floor and I cry for about five to 10 minutes. I go upstairs and I call my friend Brandon and I say, Hey buddy, I'm getting on that plane. I'm going. If I don't get on that plane tonight, my addiction and my mental illness will kill me. And all he says is I'm proud of you. I love you. Call me when you pass security. I want to make sure that you're getting on the plane. I said, okay. And I hang up. My mom comes and gets me a couple hours later, drives me to the airport. I get past security. I pick up the phone and I call my friend Brandon. Hey, buddy, I'm past security. I'm all checked in. 
I got 35 minutes until the plane leaves. I just want to let you know I'm going. And all he says to me is, I love you. I'm proud of you. You're about to get back everything that you have ever lost times three. I mean, times 10. And he just hangs up the phone. What happened to me next in that airport was the most amazing experience that I've ever had in my life. As I sit down in this chair, waiting for them to call me to board the plane, as I go to sit down, I get this overwhelming feeling of hope that engulfs my entire body. Like Mr. Bill had told you earlier, it's going to be okay. Uh, Absolutely. And and then you're, you know, the... The addiction stepped in, the mental illness, as you've labeled them, and told you the same thing. But now you're listening to the imp on the right side of your shoulder instead of the wrong. 100%. And, and as I sat down and this feeling comes over my body, it was the same tingly, warm blanket feeling that I would get from using drugs and alcohol, except this time I felt my panic, my worry, my fear, my doubt, my anxiety. And I, I believe I have felt my addiction lifted from my body. And I hear this voice that I've never heard before. And I've never heard since. And it was a woman's voice. And it was very loving and very caring, very calming. And she simply says, everything is going to be okay. It was the most amazing experience that I have ever felt in my entire life. I truly believe that I had a spiritual awakening in that airport. I truly believe that a higher power or an angel or, or something that was looking out for me came and visited me in that airport and took all of my negativity out of my body, all of my mental illness, all of my addiction. And I finally realized at the age of 44 that I was going to get the help that I needed to save my life. And when I got to rehab and the doctors took my vitals and took my blood and my heart rate and and my blood pressure and all that stuff, they called me into the doctor's office. And the gentleman looks at me and he says, how old are you? I said, I'm 44. He says, okay, well, your blood pressure is 167 over 147. You're on the verge of having a stroke. Your liver and kidneys are four times what they should be. They're on the verge of having irreversible damage. He said, I don't know how you got in here at this exact time. He said, but if you would have waited one more month, Even if you would have stopped drinking, he said, you would not have made it to your 47th birthday. The damage was done. Due due to alcohol-related damage. I stopped believing in coincidences at that exact moment. There was no way, no how that all of this happened and the timing that it happened by coincidence. I also, at that moment, knew that the 27 years that I went through of suffering and pain, it didn't happen to me. It happened for me. 
it happened for me to become the man I was always meant to be. It happened for me to realize and understand the true gift of life, to be grateful for everything that we have. I was meant to go through that, so I understood suffering and pain, so I could teach and help others going through the same thing. I was being educated. I wasn't being punished. I was going through school of life and I finally realized my purpose. My purpose was to share my story and to reach as many people as possible who are suffering with mental illness and addiction so that they know that recovery is possible. There is help out there and they can ultimately live the life that our higher power has always had waiting for them. My, my life has become more than 10 times what I ever thought it could be. I went from a drug addict, alcoholic, bipolar, manic depressant to three weeks ago becoming one of Baltimore, Maryland's most inspirational people of 2023. I, I have become a motivational speaker working with two nonprofits that I go and I speak to first responders and veterans about mental health, addiction, PTSD, and suicide prevention. I have been given the opportunity to go to rehabs and institutions, jails, and schools to speak to people about the effects of drugs and alcohol. Not only does it have on yourself, but the loved ones around you and how change is possible. I've been given the gift of life. And I, I need people to know that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how hopeless you feel, things change. They always change. Please hold on. Know that you are stronger than you ever could imagine. You are possible. You are great. And everything is going to be okay. I was... I was just afraid to interrupt you a moment ago and say, what kind of advice could you give those who are listening and struggling with a similar story of their own? And, and you just did that so eloquently and so meaningfully. What, what is one warning you would add to that? For What about family members of folks in the struggle? Say something to them, please. Your wife, <laughs> I've never met her, obviously. Haven't even heard <laughs> her name. She must be a saint. Uh, certainly a lady of patience. Uh, yeah. What would you say to family members of those who are struggling? Um, you know, I'm going to acknowledge my wife real quick. She is a saint. She deserves a Nobel Peace Prize. She deserves a, a very long vacation to Hawaii. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I asked my wife six months into my sobriety. I said, why did you stay with me? Why did you give me another chance? And she said, because I loved you when you didn't love yourself. Amen to I that. Believe, I believed in you when you didn't believe in yourself. Yep. I knew you could become the man that I once married. She saw the so, potential and not the problem. Yes. And that takes me to my next thing. Addiction 
unfortunately, is a disease. Nobody wakes up one day and says, you know what I'm going to do? I want to throw away my entire life. I want to lose my job. I want to lose my family. I want to lose my friends. I just want to give up on life. It's not a choice to do that. Yes, maybe a choice to pick up a drink or a drug is a choice. But the disease of addiction is inside of you. And once you do pick up that drink or a drug, the choice does not become yours anymore. The addiction takes over. Being a family member of somebody who is dealing with mental illness or addiction goes through the same, if not more, trauma than the person themselves in addiction or with the mental illness. It is extremely taxing on the friends and family who see that person struggling so much. Please don't give up on their family member if they're struggling. Try and try and try to get them the help that they need. The only unfortunate thing I could say about addiction is you can want the person to get help all day long. You can book them into a treatment center. You can pack their bags. You can drive them to the treatment center. You can do everything in your power to get that person help. But until the person who is struggling with addiction or mental illness wants the help, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do. But there's one thing you can do, and that's not to give up on them. Show them that you love them. Show them that you're there and support them for as long as you possibly can. A lot of people in mental illness and addiction believe that they're alone. They believe that they suffer alone. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. They, they truly believe that nobody else out there believes the type of pain that they're going through. But in reality, every single one of us is going through something in life. Each and every one of us. We do know. We do understand. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Reach out. Reaching out. And asking for help is the first step of recovery. Reaching out does not mean you're weak. Reaching out and asking for help is one of the most, if not the most courageous thing you can do for yourself. Absolutely. So, as we wrap this up here, Tim, is there anything else you want to add, comment about, or challenge folks to to do, and then I have one final question for you. I would just like everyone to know if you're struggling with mental illness or addiction, you can contact me through my Instagram page at T Lodgen or on Facebook, Timothy Lodgen. I will help you as much as I can. I have resources to get people into treatment, resources to get into psychologists, psychiatrists. I have an endless amount of listening skills. I will sit and listen for an hour and try to help you as best as I can because I truly believe that is my purpose in life. This is what I want to do. If you are out there and you're sitting in the dark and you can't find the light, you can call on me. I will come and sit in that darkness with you and together we will both find the light. Do us a favor, please. Spell out your 
email or whatever you would like to have the folks address, but I want to make sure they get the spelling right. Go ahead and give that to them, and then we'll make sure we add a link to this as well. Yes, you can contact me. My main page for recovery is on the Instagram page, and that is at T-L-O-D-G-E-N, at T-Logging. And you can contact me there. Email me is Tim at iCloud.com. L-O-D-G-E-N, Tim at iCloud.com. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I want to wrap it up with this question. As you are aware, the name of our podcast is Faith in Your Recovery. What does that mean to you, that title, your personal understanding of it? Without faith, I don't believe I could have done this. Faith, if you live a life without faith, you will be lost. And I was lost for 27 years because I didn't have faith. I didn't believe in anything other than me. When I finally took my hands off of those steering wheels and I allowed faith to take over and I allowed for what was to happen to me, let it be, my life has become so peaceful, so gracious so filled with gratitude. I've become so humbled. I've become so balanced in life. Faith for me has given me a new way of life and a new way of living. It is absolutely 100%, 50% of my recovery is believing in something greater than myself Amen. that could restore me to sanity and take away my addiction. Wow. Folks, uh, if you have any questions, any comments, let us know. Give back to us. And you can contact us easily at podcast at ablbh.org. We'll connect you with Tim, and I'm sure he'll, con he'll help connect you where you need to be and help lead you to that next right step. It's been a privilege to have you with us today, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. And hey, thanks for stepping down off that bucket, buddy. I've This is the first opportunity I've had to speak with you and meet you, but, but it's been a pleasure and I treasure this opportunity and God bless and all that lies before you and your family. Take care. We'll be in touch. God bless and thank you, folks. Amen. Thank you. Amen.